1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Neel
3: Kuxal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition.
2: Tonight, the silence treatment. Edmonton police are investigating dozens of cases of arson and alleged extortion. And a business owner there tells us fear of reprisals is keeping members of the South Asian community from coming forward. Hard truths. After a report highlights the cascading failures
3: by police during the Uvalde, Texas, school shooting, the mother of one victim
2: tells us she feels deep sadness and vindication. Upper management, Nunavut signs a historic agreement that gives it control over public lands and natural resources. A former premier tells us a long-awaited deal brought him to tears. Let's
3: get the show on the rodent. The family restaurant Chuck E. Cheese is about to become a game show. To the horror of everyone who is scared of Mr. Cheese and his robot friends.
2: Subject to review for decades, Pitchfork was the go-to website for a lot of music fans. Now it's facing a merger with GQ. We speak with one longtime contributor. A layered analysis. Researchers uncover the route traveled
3: 14,000 years ago by a woolly mammoth. And they've done it by uncovering isotopes layered in her six-foot-long tusk. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that always focuses on the tusk at hand. In cities across Canada, there is growing concern about extortion, with victims primarily in the South Asian community. The mayors of Brampton, Ontario, and Surrey, B.C. have asked the federal government for help addressing this and in an update from Edmonton today police said they are now investigating 27 incidents related to the ongoing extortion series in the region the alleged crimes include arson and firearms offenses police say home builders are being targeted and the victims typically receive whatsapp messages demanding money at this time we believe the series is being committed by a group of local individuals being directed by a suspect in India While there are similar occurrences in BC and Ontario, there is no evidence to suggest they are related to the Edmonton incidents. To date, police have arrested six young males in connection with these arsons and firearms offenses. The project team or task force is working locally and with police and other jurisdictions to obtain the necessary evidence to arrest and successfully prosecute those responsible. In the meantime, we are asking the community to come forward and report anything They know about this crime, especially if they have been the victim of extortion or threats. There may be people out there who have paid the extortion fee and have not reported to police. And if that's the case, we want to know about it. That's Inspector Lance Parker of the Edmonton Police. Ravi Prakash is the chair of the Edmonton chapter of the Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce.
2: We reached him in Edmonton. Ravi, do you think people feel safe enough to come forward as police have asked them to do?
0: No, they are not. We all have to understand that people are having the fear of getting targeted, you know, help from the community. Yes, it can be there. However, you know, they have to understand the pros and cons about it, right? No one wants to put their name or Mm. nobody wants to come in front and say something about this kind of, Mm. you know, critical situation.
2: What did you think when you heard police say that this is, this is someone working in India, essentially a criminal network in India that's behind
0: this? See, um, are you surprised with that? I don't think I'm surprised. Police have not said something which is unique, which is the information people were not aware about. We all were aware, aware about the, uh, you know, this link is from India. So well, it is not something new which they have informed today at the press conference.
2: What are home builders who you know in Edmonton telling you about how they're feeling right
0: now? Everyone is feeling scared, right? Everyone Mm -hmm. is feeling scared. It's not like, uh, you know, but again, it's the same thing. Nobody wants to talk about it in public. Nobody wants to come in front and say something about it.
2: What are they telling you privately that you can share without identifying them?
0: No, I'm, you -hmm. know, that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Like everyone is afraid that Mm -hmm. who will be the next. Who will be targeted, do, why it is happening. Yeah.
2: Do you know what, anyone who has been targeted?
0: I do, mm-hmm. but I don't want to disclose the name.
2: What has it been like for them going through this?
0: You know, people are going for extra long vacations. They are leaving Edmonton. This is what is happening right now.
2: Do the arrests that police outlined today, do the those give you any comfort? Do you think they will will uh, calm the fears that people have a little bit?
0: To be honest, the arrest, which was done before, you know, if you ask my personal opinion, I can give only my personal opinion. Yes. Because those arrests were made for the kids of 18, 20 years old, right? Do you think this kind of severe, you know, situation, what we are dealing with, it can be planned by these kids? So, you know, the investigation is very shallow at this moment. Mm-hmm. It is not, you know, they are not able to reach the right person who is behind all this. You know, this kids maybe they are just the face and doing the, you know, this arson and all. Mm-hmm. But they are not the real culprit. They are not.
2: You've talked about how frightened people are to come forward. You've chosen to speak out publicly. Why did you want to do that?
0: Well, for me, first of all, I'm not in that bracket where, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm such a big businessman where people can target me. I don't have that money. So, you know, I'm very, very small. And I'm not talking as a businessman, but I'm representing, you know, the business community as a. Chamber of Commerce or Mm Safarish Networking Group. So I'm talking that capacity. So, you know.
2: yeah. There are wealthy people of South Asian descent all over the world. Why do you think people here are being targeted?
0: Well, maybe our system is, they understand our system. They know that, uh, you know, the protection, the whatever, they are able to do that. And that's why they found us as an easy target, maybe because of that.
2: Edmonton police have said they don't believe at this point that this is connected to what's happened in other places. It does sound similar to what, for example, Brampton's mayor, Patrick Brown, has described as happening Mm -hmm. there. He said he's worried it could happen elsewhere in Canada as well. Um, It sounds like you are
0: as well. See, the thing is, uh, what I feel If one person got targeted wherever and there is a success story for them who is targeting people, you know, they can target more people because they have tasted the success. So this is what is happening. And it is going to be contagious. Today, maybe only Indian community is getting targeted. Who knows? Maybe other communities will target, you know, get targeted in future.
2: What do you think police should do?
0: I don't know. I'm like... Again, they have to use their resources. I'm not expert what police should do or what they should not. They are more intelligent. However, the optics is they are putting their manpower, their efforts, which is not the priority. And they have to understand their priority. They have to. Every day I see them on the road all the time, giving tickets, tickets, tickets it looks like their main business is doing tick
2: Ravi, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.
3: Ravi Prakash is the chair of the Edmonton chapter of the Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce. He's in Edmonton. The city's police force also said today it is comparing notes with law enforcement in other jurisdictions in Canada and that a dedicated project team continues to investigate this series and its connection to organized crime. This was the sound in Iqaluit today during a ceremony for the largest land transfer in Canadian history. After decades of negotiations, the federal government has signed over responsibility for the land and water in Nunavut to the territory. Before the official signing, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about the importance of the land.
4: An Arctic archipelago with animals, birds, precious sea ice. A place where many people still live off the land, a place that is seeing some of the fastest warming on the planet as a result of climate change, a place of deep meaning to Inuit.
3: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at a ceremony in Iqaluit earlier today. Paul Kwasa was at the ceremony. He is the former premier of Nunavut and one of the chief negotiators of the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement that created the modern territory.
2: We reached him in Iqaluit. Paul, what do you hope this means in terms of opportunities for Nunavut?
5: Well, First of all, I believe uh, this is one of the visions that we had when we uh, signed the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement in 1993, and it's been uh, it took many years to before we uh, uh, signed uh, the piece of puzzle that uh, that we're still working on. Mm-hmm. It means that uh, Nunavut itself will have more uh, will have a, a total control of its own territory. Uh, all the lands and resources that have been held by the federal government uh, since time immemorial uh, is now going to be held by uh, our territorial government. And, and certainly, uh, this is part of, uh, as I said, uh, part of the whole uh, making up of, of this, completing this puzzle of uh, self reliance, self independence. And, uh, and it was a great uh, moment for Nunavut Mute. A big celebration, I believe, uh, because again, we can now say that uh, Inuit are now landlords of their own territory.
2: What kind of specific endeavors or projects or developments do you see in the immediate future now that that the control over land and water has been handed over?
5: Well, yes. Uh, right now, uh, the only uh, the only uh, industry that we have up here is mining and and certainly mining is, is, is it does play a very big role in Nunavut it creates employment for for inuit and and certainly uh, most of all these mines existing mines are now on inuit own lands so what i see now is that uh, there'll be opportunities for other mines to to open up on on uh, on our territorial lands and and certainly this will mean that uh, our territorial government will not only rely on federal handouts uh in the future it will uh, be able to uh, ha- create their own resources their own monies to to uh to spend uh for Nunavut mute so it it certainly uh will play a major role within our territorial government our fiscal aspects of our territorial government
2: what does it mean to you personally?
5: Well, for me, I've been waiting for this a long time. I signed the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement in 1993, and I knew this was our vision, where Inuit would have uh, would be the landlords of their own territory, and eventually th- this started taking place. And now, with today's uh, signing of the the devolution, uh, this gives. Uh, uh, as a more opportunity for for uh, for our government to live up to the obligations under the land claims agreement, uh, which says that uh, Inuit, within the workforce of the government, has to be a representative level. And I believe this is going to be a, another stepping stone in, in acquiring that uh, obligation that the territorial government has.
2: What do you hope young Inuit take away from what has happened today?
5: Well this this uh this is a very important milestone for Inuit. Uh they you know our young people uh, know that the the history of, of our, our uh, Inuit in, in Nunavut we went through a lot of traumas, we went through so many uh events that were so negative in the past and and and, and this is what our young people had heard. But with this devolution I think uh it's it's going to give them more uh, uh opportunity and 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 to believe in Nunavut more because uh you know we created Nunavut for our young people and for the next generation to come.
2: We heard just a few moments ago what it sounded like in that room at this moment of history standing there for you. What did that feel and look like?
5: Oh, uh, it it you know it it kind of brought me tears because I remember uh, when we signed the first uh, the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement in 1993. I mean, uh, a lot of our elders that were there are not here today, but I know they are here in spirit because you know we are finally getting back to our independence. Inuit were very independent prior to the government coming up to our territory. And, and this is what our dream was, to become independent again, not to rely from the outside. And and thirdly, uh, this is exactly what I felt today. We are now going to be the true landlords of our own territory.
2: Paul, thank
3: you.
5: Thank you very much.
3: Paul Kwasa is the former Premier of Nunavut. He was in Iqaluit. It's 2003, and Liz Fair just released her self-titled album in the music video for the first track, Why Can't I? She's rocking a band tee over a long sleeve, sitting on the ground in an all-white room and singing to the camera. And the review site Pitchfork gave the music a resounding zero. Later, the writer said he regretted that score. But it is just one example of the many raw, boundary-pushing, sometimes snarky album reviews that staff and contributors at the online publication wrote over more than two decades. Reviews that could make or break an artist. Yesterday, Condé Nast announced that it is folding Pitchfork into the men's magazine GQ and laying off an unknown number of staff, including its editor-in-chief. Pitchfork of course, evolved over the years, expanding from its bread-and-butter indie rock to review pop and rap, but many fear that this newest iteration spells the end. Jameson Cox was a longtime Pitchfork contributor. We
2: reached him in Waterloo. Jameson, at its peak, how would you describe the power of Pitchfork?
1: yeah uh so I started reading the site when I was in high school uh that which was the mid two thousands to date myself and that's really I think when pitchfork was at the peak of its power when it came to taste making online uh This is a point where um you know the iTunes store exists and people can download music, but streaming services like spotify and and Apple music aren't really a thing yet, and people are still in most cases spending money on music or they're deciding you know what they want to download illegally and so the power of sites like pitchfork and and spin and rolling stone was um you know to tell people how they should spend their money and to tell them what was cool and what was worth their time um and you know given the age i was at at that point you know, 14 15 16 starting to read the site just getting interested in music it was like a gateway to all of these, you know, genres that I was unfamiliar with and artists I hadn't heard before and and really a different universe of music and influence than what I might hear on the radio growing up in Northern Ontario. So uh, it opened a ton of doors for me and it, it felt like the place where you heard about cool music and it's always occupied that spot in my mind, I guess.
2: And then at the age of 19, you write your first article for Pitchfork I mean, were you just losing your mind at that point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, you know, it it felt like I had this little blog um, and I had no idea how um, people whose work I respected had ever found it, but they had. And all of a sudden I I was getting this call up to the big leagues. And, you know, at the time I thought, wow, this is is it. I'm going to become the world's most famous music critic and of of course it didn't work out that way but i was still you know was and am so proud to have been a part of the site and so honored to ask to contribute and to um share what i thought about the music that i loved. that's you know it's what i love to do
2: we just played a bit our listeners heard of liz fair's song why can't i from the infamous (laughs) album that pitchfork gave in its review a zero Uh, Not a one, (laughs) not a two, a zero, (laughs) and that just, that underlines, you know, how cutting these reviews, these influential reviews could be, but Mm -hmm. illustrate some other examples, if you could, of just how these reviews could go
1: yeah I mean, I think that's certainly what earned the site a lot of its notoriety or its its cachet in the early days was the really, really harsh pans um sometimes they were even uh wordless. That's how you knew someone really had a ton of disdain uh for a record um but I think at the same time, you know something that often doesn't get mentioned or um needs a bit more attention is how effusive um the writers for the site could be and how enthusiastic they could be about what they loved and that was part of what was special about the site to me is um just how passionate uh, the writers could be and that could go in either direction right you might hate something but you might love something too
2: in terms of your reviews you were referring to in the, in the decade or so that that you contributed regularly uh, of favorite album? Did you ever give an album a 10?
1: <laughs> I don't think I ever got to um, to wield the 10, but I actually wrote the first um, album review or the first time that the site had ever covered Taylor Swift, um, mm-hmm. which at the time was a really big deal, right? It was like, oh wow, Pitchfork has, has deigned to you know cover one of the most um, popular musicians working, mm-hmm. and I think it was part of the site's sort of long journey toward um taking pop music more seriously so um the album i wrote about was reputation you know and i feel like for the taylor swift fans really uh pivotal era i guess you could say so i'm proud of how it holds up and obviously <laughs> taylor swift has uh done just fine so
2: yeah i think she's gonna do okay no matter what you you wrote or didn't write about her what number did you give it
1: Remember? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was like a 6.8 or something, 6.8, mm-hmm. 6.5. So not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> Didn't want to uh, anger the Swifties. Yeah, but... we won't
2: alert them uh, retroactively to your decisions <laughs> at that time. There's another album that you wrote about as well uh, that you were telling our producer about, 2018 album by someone known as Justin Timberlake.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that was... Um probably the only time where I really felt um, aggrieved (laughs) for for whatever reason by, you know, this uh, Justin Timberlake comeback effort. So that's definitely, of all the reviews I wrote for the site, I think that's the one where I was the meanest and I came closest to that classic uh, pitchfork pan. Uh, Yeah, that one was a little on the harsh side for sure. You
2: gave it a 3.8 and asked, quote, how much of his career should we chalk up to fortune, privilege, and an essential malleability? End quote. But you've said that, that you've kind of feel vindicated now, given how how people think of, of him and his music.
1: I don't want to be too too harsh on mm-hmm. on Justin Timberlake. He could still put out you know music that that I might come to love. But so I think Canadian of you. But- I'm I'm trying to be uh, equivocal here, but yeah, I think between the sort of looking back at, you know, Britney Spears uh, and their relationship in the early 2000s and then everything that happened with Janet Jackson and the way she was treated in the wake of her Super Bowl performance with Justin Timberlake, you know, I don't want to say vindicated, but I think maybe people are going back and looking at uh, his ascent to to pop stardom with a more critical eye, let's say, uh, and maybe not exactly the critical I, I used in that review, but you know everyone 's just taking a look back at how things happened.
2: Jameson, thank you
1: oh, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure
3: Jameson Cox was a longtime pitchfork contributor. We reached him in Waterloo. Loved ones of those who died in the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, have been saying almost since the beginning, the police failed us. Today, the U.S. Department of Justice backed them up. A scathing, detailed report into the mass shooting described a series of cascading failures by law enforcement. It said police acted with no urgency, waiting more than an hour, while the gunman was holed up with the victims, and that if they had moved in sooner lives could have been saved. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland.
4: Their loved ones deserve better. The law enforcement response at Robb Elementary School on May 24, 2022, and in the hours and days after, was a failure that should not have happened. We hope to honor the victims and the survivors by working together to try to prevent anything like this from ever happening again here or anywhere.
3: U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Kimberly Mata-Rubio's 10-year-old daughter, Lexi, was killed at Robb Elementary, along with 18 other students and two teachers. We reached her in Uvalde, Texas.
2: Kimberly, I wonder what, what those words from the Attorney General, that you deserved better, mean to you nearly two years after the shooting? I think it's
6: I think it's syndication. It's something that we've known all along. Law enforcement failed the students and teachers at Robb Elementary. But it, now it's out there for the world to see and nobody can hide away from it anymore.
2: As you mentioned, you you and the other families uh, knew these, these things. Uh, others have talked about it. That police stood outside the classroom did not act for more than an hour, while people inside, including students, were, were calling nine one one, and people on the outside, parents, were trying to get in, and, and the report really underlines the lack of leadership and how crucial that is. How much responsibility do you feel that individual officers who were on the scene bear?
6: Reading through the report, and again, I'm still trying to read through all of it in its entirety, but. So far, what I've learned is that there were 11 first-responding officers that could have done more. And some of them aren't named because they're not in the leadership title or politicians. But I wish that everybody would have been named so the pieces are easier to put together. Mm
2: -hmm. What would naming them mean for you? What would that change?
6: I think the community needs to know who arrived first and failed to act so that they can come to their own conclusion about who they believe is at fault. Mm
2: -hmm. You mentioned the word vindication. I've heard others use that as well. I wonder what other emotions are tied up in in this day for you and those words that you're reading in nearly the 600 pages that you're pouring over.
6: It's typical you want to read through it so you're aware of everything that went wrong that day. But none of that changes the fact that I can't have my daughter back, And so it's also very difficult to read her last moments and wonder again, could she have been saved if more had been done early?
2: There are, as I understand it, um, pages and pages in the in the report that talk about Lexi and the other students and the teachers who lost their lives. What do you want people who who haven't seen the report to know from what's written there about Lexi? I
6: want people to know that Lexi was loved and she is greatly missed. She was very intelligent. She had straight A's on that day. She had received the Good Citizen Award. And I hope people aspire to be more like her, enjoying our fight to end gun violence.
2: The person who killed your daughter and the others at the school was a young man with an AR-15. Can you imagine a time, you know, as you fight this issue, you know, trying to bring changes to gun laws in the United States and in your own community, can you imagine a time where students and schools can be a place where they're not worried about an attack like this?
6: Absolutely. You just have to turn to so many other countries that have got it right. We have it wrong. And our our students, they deserve so much more.
2: You've also been pushing, along with the other families, your county's district attorney, to hold the officers we were talking about a moment ago accountable. Why do you think that hasn't happened yet? I am asking
6: the same question, especially because you read the report and it's definitely more information, but if you ask me, all you need to see was the body camera footage and you know that officers failed that day. I am hoping that action is taken after this, especially with the spotlight back on Uvalde. The world saw what went wrong and they, like us, want answers.
2: What would, uh, apart from that kind of accountability, what would action and change specifically look like for you and Uvalde? For me specifically, action looks like terminating officers who failed that day,
6: our DA holding them criminally accountable. That means criminal prosecution. And then also our federal government and our state government enacting sensible gun laws.
2: When we spoke with you last summer, you came on the program, you were running for mayor. You've been trying to to make change in any way that you can. uh, And as we've mentioned, you continue to push for accountability. How do you do that work every day?
6: It's my responsibility to Lexi. It's what I owe her. I want her name to be tied to change.
2: How are your other children doing? They miss their sister. I think we
6: are all hurting and just trying to be there for each other and navigating this new world.
2: Does a report like this, even though there's still so much change you want, as we've said, does a report like this heal you a a little bit or does it deepen the pain?
6: Nothing ever fixes anything for us. We will always be in pain. It is a constant pain. This is just part of justice that we want for Lexi, but it doesn't change the grief that we have to undergo.
2: Well, Kimberly, uh, I very much appreciate your time again. And I'm sorry Thank you. that you're dealing with this still. Thank you so much for having me. Please take care.
3: That was Kimberly Mata-Rubio, whose daughter Lexi died in the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. She was in Uvalde, Texas. You can find that interview on our website cbc.ca/aih. She was tall, about three meters, with shaggy brown fur and big front teeth. And now, researchers are piecing together more of her story. I'm talking about Elma, the woolly mammoth who lived about 14,000 years ago. Now, a new study maps part of the route Elma traveled during her time on Earth, and scientists deciphered it using just one Body part. Hendrik Poinar is an evolutionary geneticist at McMaster University and one of the researchers who worked on the study. We reached him in Linden, Ontario.
2: Hendrik, what did your research reveal about where Elma's journey began and where she ended up?
4: Yeah, it's an interesting and long journey for Elma, even though she was only 20 years old at the end of her life. but. She clearly started and began her life somewhere on the western edges of the Yukon and then slowly lived there for quite a bit of her life period. And at the point she became more mature and was traveling large distances. She roamed in three years, about a thousand kilometers, ending up at a really interesting place in Alaska.
2: You didn't have a lot to go on, but you did have a tusk to work with.
4: Yeah, so this was a this was a, a single six foot tusk found at Swan Point in Alaska, and uh, our collaborators Matt Wooler and his graduate student Albie Rowe basically dissected the rings. And if you could sort of think of a tree and its rings, but in the in the case of a tusk, it's sort of like sugar cones on ice creams being stacked up against each other. So you have these long extensions of yearly growth on these tusks as they go. And so Matt and and his student basically took those rings that represented yearly growth and looked at the isotopes within each of those rings. And those isotopes can be tracked back to a landscape. um, And by using sort of maps of where those isotopes stick on the landscape, you could actually follow her movements across her space and time.
2: It's not just her her movements that you were focused on, or what your study has revealed. It's that it's that they were coexisting with humans over quite a period of time, right? That's what you're suggesting here. What brought you to those conclusions?
4: Yeah, so it's it's it, it turns out the space that she was found in uh, at about fourteen thousand years ago became a a camp for early humans in Alaska. Um, And these were sort of seasonal hunting grounds. But if we go back to an earlier male mammoth, Kick, he happened to to frequent this location as well before humans were even present on the landscape. So clearly this was a big, giant, open grazing spot between the Brooks Mountain Ranges. And then at some point, humans arrive on the scene as they're moving across the Bering Land Bridge from Siberia uh, coming into the Americas. And they probably begin to track and have been tracking large game like mammoths and bison to this loca- location. And so what, what Elma's tusk seems to show is that she was frequently in that spot, probably um, using it as a, a mating ground, a herding ground, a grazing ground. And at some point, hunters uh, use the ground for uh, food, right, obviously. So, so we know from Ben Potter, who's the archeologist of the site, um, that this was a, an active hunting ground with tons of micro blades, really sharp, razor sharp, small uh, fluted uh, points that could be stuck into steers and were used as almost like large spear barbed darts that were used for hunting.
2: Your study stopped short of saying that that they were being hunted, but what you just said there suggests that that's what you think was was probably happening.
4: Well, I think, yeah, I think the the problem when we talk about hunting, people immediately draw to this binary that people have always talked about in the extinction of large animals mm-hmm. from Americas, which is it was either people hunted them to extinction or climate completely wiped them out. And I think the answer is much more nuanced than that. And it's not surprising that uh, a tribe in need of food would hunt some large game because it's a huge source of protein and fat and workable material with bones and ivory for everything from art uh, to uh, you know, tools and, and weaponry and, and so on and so forth. I think that just drawing the connection between hunting a few animals for survival as opposed to driving entire species to extinction is too large of a leap mm-hmm. to make.
2: The Tusk we've been talking about that helped reveal so many of these these answers for you 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 also talk about how useful that would have been for the humans there as well
4: absolutely that tusk I mean ivory is a remarkably uh you know well and and easily worked material into beautiful carvings and and we see that in in other archaeological deposits people use that to make. Phenomenal art um, that people still in Siberia, in the northern part, still use mammoth ivory today. And so these are direct descendants of, of peoples that live uh, today in that space.
2: You've imagined Elma and her well, life quite a bit.
4: Yeah, yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about Elma and that landscape and the fact that we could actually regenerate her movements her place along a a landscape, her relationship genetically to the baby and a juvenile, also found at that point, all comes from a few remains at this site, gives us insight into behavior of an animal that once existed and and lived with ancestors of the first people here in Canada. I think that's truly remarkable.
2: And information that we didn't know before.
4: We did not have access to before, no. And I, I think understanding how first people and, and these large animals interacted on that landscape is important. And how ultimately those animals went extinct speaks to how we need to be very careful with a, a warming climate and the forcing that is ongoing because of direct and indirect anthropogenic forces.
2: So what will you do next?
4: I think we're going to continue to look at this spot through uh, both time and space, because now that we have the genetics, we're going to sequence the entire genome of Elma, and we're going to look for her relatives across space and time. So we're able, with teaspoons of dirt, to actually reconstruct genomes of animals that existed. So that's without using any bone or skin or anything. These are just skin cells that have sloughed off over the course of the lifetime. And it would be great to know how many of Elma's ancestors visited Swan Point, Point. Years before humans arrived, and then for a little bit before they finally go extinct, how much longer were Elma's relatives in that location?
2: Hendrik, thank you.
4: Thanks for having me on the show.
3: Hendrik Poinar is an evolutionary biologist at McMaster University. We reached him in Linden, Ontario. The United States and Britain say they have no intention of stopping their strikes on Houthi-controlled sites in Yemen until Houthis stop their strikes on vessels in the Red Sea. The Houthis say their attacks are a response to Israel's ongoing bombardment of Gaza, and a growing chorus of aid organizations says the response they've elicited is endangering civilian lives in Yemen. Yesterday, the U.S. redesignated the Houthis a terrorist group, and State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller sought to reassure reporters of the country's commitment to Yemen's civilian population.
1: As always, we are working to mitigate any adverse impacts of this designation on the people of Yemen, including through the issuance of five general licenses by the Treasury Department designed to ensure that food, fuel, Critical humanitarian aid and essential commercial goods are able to continue flowing to vulnerable Yemeni civilians. The United States is the world's leading donor of humanitarian assistance to Yemen. We recognize the grave humanitarian situation there, which is why we are taking these steps to minimize harm to the civilian population. At the same time, we will continue to make clear to the Houthis that their attacks against commercial vessels must stop, and we will remain, uh, uh, we will remain prepared to take additional actions if necessary.
3: That's U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller at a press briefing yesterday. Sama Hadid is head of advocacy, media, and communications for the Norwegian Refugee Council in the Middle East and North Africa. The organization is one of 26 signatories on a new open letter warning that the escalating violence in Yemen spells disaster for civilians
2: there. We reached Ms. Hadid in Amman, Jordan. uh, the U.S. State Department, as you heard there, says that it is committed and the U.S. government is committed to safeguarding humanitarian work in Yemen. Are you convinced?
8: Well, with two thirds of Yemen's population in need of assistance, that's over 21 million people in need of aid, NRC is concerned uh, about the potential humanitarian impact of the U.S. designation and the disruption it may cause to humanitarian delivery. Yemen, as a country, is reliant on imports for ninety percent of the its of the food um, and fuel coming into the country and supplies um, such as medical supplies. And so, this designation could negatively affect those essential commercial imports but also the services that millions of vulnerable Yemenis depend on, such as financial and banking
2: services. And some aid organizations have already suspended their operations, have they not?
8: Well, that was due to military strikes uh, on Yemen um, that were led by the UK and US governments. Um, And we are worried about also the military escalation uh, in Yemen. We're concerned about uh, more violence uh, in the country that threatens uh, Yemenis already struggling to cope with harsh humanitarian and living conditions. You know, nine, nearly nine years of war has left people in Yemen in desperate need of food, water, and life-saving assistance. And the last thing Yemen needs right now is military escalation.
2: Uh, uh, the U.S. And, and the U.K. say they are hitting sites from which houthis are launching missiles are you hearing something different from your colleagues on the ground
8: i mean we're not hearing anything different uh, but we're worried that the escalation will spiral mm-hmm. and may derail peace negotiations that are quite fragile uh, in the country and also long-term recovery that yemen desperately needs so hostilities will only make things worse. And right now we need all parties, political leaders to focus on improving the lives of Yemenis um, and they should consider the dire humanitarian implications of further military escalation. So we're urging all actors to prioritize diplomatic channels over military auctions. Right now it's a very fragile context and... Even within the wider context as well, we're worried that this military escalation will lead to wider regional conflict, which is the last thing that the region needs. Uh, so innocent civilians um, and those reliant on the, the supply of humanitarian aid delivery, the supply of commercial goods and services you know, must be uh, top of mind here.
2: U.S. President Joe Biden has said the strikes against the Houthis will continue for as long as it takes to deter them from hitting targets in the Red Sea. What do you hear when you hear those comments?
8: Well, we're incredibly worried. We've seen uh, ongoing international uh, funding cuts to aid in Yemen, and civilians can't cope with further conflict Uh, They desperately need long-term recovery and and need peace and a lasting peace. And we hope that uh, leaders uh, consider uh, the need to prioritize these peace talks uh, and the stability of Yemen and also the the region. It's nearly nine years uh, since the crisis began. Uh, And Yemen desperately needs stability. It needs a long term recovery. Over 4 million uh, Yemenis are internally displaced. Uh,
2: They need long term stability and uh, peace. What will it take to achieve that? That hasn't happened in nine years.
8: Well, we urgently need a de-escalation, uh, given the current developments uh, on the ground in Yemen and, and given these ongoing airstrikes. Um, we need to ensure that any designations of Ansarallah, um involve safeguards uh, for humanitarian uh, aid and uh, for commercial input so that they don't jeopardize the fuel, the medicine, the food that's coming into Yemen. Um, and we need the international community to increase its aid funding. Yemen, despite years of of war, has seen year after year just cuts to aid. Uh, and we urgently need um, governments around the world to not neglect Yemen and, and the people of Yemen and ensure that they provide the funding assistance uh, for humanitarian aid, but also the diplomatic uh, efforts that are needed to
2: pursue peace. Are you reassured when you hear a State Department spokesperson, like we heard at the outset of this conversation, when, when they say the things that he said? Does that, does that reassure you at all?
8: Well, in regards to the specific general licenses that the U.S. government have uh, introduced or are planning to introduce, that that is reassuring. We want to see these safeguards, though, actually implemented and respected. And we want to make sure that the private sector and commercial actors are not scared away from operating in Yemen uh, in this crucial period where, um, you know, so many uh, people, millions of people are reliant on commercial imports. So humanitarian aid and uh, commercial uh, imports have to be protected um, when states are considering designations like this.
2: Sama, thank you for your time.
8: Thank you.
3: Sama Hadid is Head of Advocacy, Media and Communications for the Norwegian Refugee Council in the Middle East and North Africa. We reached her in Amman. The loans saved them when they needed a break, and now the time has come to pay them back. Today, the deadline arrived for recipients of the Canada Emergency Business Account, the fund that kept many businesses alive during the pandemic. Moira Adlin is a co-owner of Highland Cinema in London, Ontario, which had to pay back one of those loans today. We reached Ms. Adlin
2: in London. Moira, today was deadline day. Were you able to pay back your loan?
7: We did pay it back, yes. Um, it took a little bit of finessing, but uh, we did manage to pay it back, yes.
2: You had borrowed $60,000. How much were you able to pay?
7: We paid the full forty, so that we could get the $20,000 forgiveness.
2: That's the, the forgiveness package the, the federal government was offering to those who, who make that payment. Paying off a loan of any size can... Can usually come with a feeling of of relief, a weight off of your shoulders. How does this one feel?
7: Uh, this one feels like it's put us into a pretty precarious position.
2: What do you mean by that?
7: Well, um, cinemas haven't really recovered very well, particularly the independents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're only at about fifty percent of our pre-COVID you know, uh, customers, right? So uh, we're struggling with product, and uh, we have the writer's strike, which reduces the product again. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're at about, they're saying this year we'll be at about 25% of the films available that we had pre-COVID. So Mm -hmm. it's a battle to just survive, right? And so uh, trying to uh, generate revenue to uh, pay back that loan is, is tough. We're basically living from, payroll to payroll because any kind of, uh, you know, operating capital is gone. We had to use that to help pay back the loan.
2: So say there's no safety net, it's, it, it sounds like there's no reserve fund. That's that's right. We knew, you know, everyone who, who had borrowed this money knew that this day would come. And the Prime Minister reiterated yesterday that pandemic supports would have to end at some point. What choice did the federal government have here? You know, they say that uh, 70% of loan recipients repaid this and, and benefited from partial repayment.
7: Right. I think that um, it's been tough for people who are in the cultural industries, arts, tourism. Often we were the la- uh, the last opened, and we haven't recovered a lot from that. So I think that sort of a uh, partial payment back uh, based on our recovery, which is easy to, to show them, Um, would have been probably a little better uh, approach to, like, trying to help the small business out. So we're definitely showing goodwill. The people who can pay it back, they can tell by your income tax and are pre-COVID and post-COVID. So I think they could have made a little more effort to try to do it in steps.
2: Mm -hmm. Would that be fair, though, to people who did pay or businesses who did repay in full already? By the deadline? If they
7: paid in full already, it's probably because they had the income. A lot of mm-hmm. certain industries did recover very quickly or didn't really get hurt that bad during COVID. Mm-hmm. But uh, we all know that the industry uh, that I'm talking about, were were in
2: rough shape. So step by step, you're saying, but also maybe tailored to the needs of different industries? Is that what you're saying?
7: Right, which is how it was uh, set up. A lot of COVID uh, funding was set up based on the fact that there were definitely uh, lower businesses that were covering at a lower rate.
2: Our colleagues at Radio Canada received a statement uh, in response to their questions on this issue from the press secretary for finance minister, Christian Freeland. And part of that says, you know, people can choose to refinance their loan and repay it by March 28th of this year, and they would still benefit from that partial repayment. Uh, Or small business owners, they write in the statement, can take advantage of three additional years until December 31st, 2026 to repay their loan in full. So... From their perspective, they're giving alternatives to make it step-by-step, step, but what would taking them up on, on those alternative offers have meant for you? Well,
7: the bank loan is tough to get uh, because it's based on your income, and the uh, the risk factor goes up, the interest rates go up. So, I mean, it was a lot of spreadsheets to take a look at the cost of carrying that loan, or even if mm-hmm. we could, versus uh, for the extra time at 5% versus... Um, what the bank was lending at or how much they would offer. They they don't offer the full amount. Usually they just offer a portion of it. It's not some magic thing that can just happen.
2: So you've pay, repaid this now. How do you budget and plan for the months ahead? What do you foresee for for your theatre?
7: Um, it's basically taking a look at staff, right, um, and whether we can keep all of our staff. And uh, I think that's a hard on us and a lot of business owners because we end up, pay- uh, you know, taking up the slack, right? We work 12, 15-hour days, and uh, to keep us keep the business going, and we want to keep our employees employed. We want to be part of the community and uh, contribute and offer unique services. So, I mean, we're in the businesses usually because we love them. So we're we're working really hard to keep them alive.
2: What does your cinema give to the community? Anyone who loves a local theatre knows the answer to that, but uh, but yeah. what is your connection
7: to I'm, the community? Well, we try to work at a very grassroots level, support local filmmakers, support Canadian film. I'm mean, 30% of our films last year were Canadian. Um, we really work with uh, different groups that want to put something on or show a unique perspective. We love showing films from around the world. We really believe in... Uh, it helps in understanding in countries and understand what other people are going through and it builds kind of a a relationship between cultures that may not necessarily happen otherwise.
2: Have you seen support from your community in return in these tough times?
7: Yes, when we put the call out in uh, early December that we were in tough shape, I mean, people have come, responded and they're coming out, buying memberships, coming back, we've seen people now That we were missing definitely. They told us they had changed their patterns a bit, but now they're coming back. And uh, yeah, lots of love and support. And it's definitely helped us get through some of the money that was missing Mm -hmm. from uh, what the bank could help us with, right? So that's made a
2: huge difference. Moira, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much.
3: Moira Adlin is a co owner of Highland Cinema in London, Ontario. We reached her there. A 1986 commercial for what has since become an international institution, the family funporium slash restaurant, Chuck E. Cheese, presided over by that enterprising entrepreneur slash rodent, Charles Entertainment Cheese. Yes, his middle name is actually Entertainment. Kids would probably have guessed the E stood for excitement, and parents might have assumed it stood for ear-splitting or excruciating. Ultimately, that's the deal. Most children can't get enough of Mr. Cheese's establishments. Most grown-ups can't get too little of them. So it's kind of strange to hear about the imminent Chuck E. Cheese game show for grown-ups. This will not be a show where people try not to hurl after eating a stuffed crust pizza chased by two liters of Mountain Dew. No, no, to quote from the official description, the format will feature standalone comedic physical challenges where duos of big kids, AKA adults, will compete over supersized arcade games including pinball, air hockey, alley roller, and the human claw. Okay, far be it for me to uh, question the stellar business instincts of Charles Entertainment Cheese, but the thing is, adults are not actually just big kids. We're older, we're kind of stressed, so we don't necessarily need loud, brain-clanging arcade noises or terrifying animatronic animals, and we don't know what the human claw is, but I'm pretty sure we don't like that either. So. Good luck with your game show, but this whole thing leaves a bad taste in the mouse. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at 6.
2: You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Oksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger.
4: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.